If, like me, your childhood was spent watching cartoons in the late 80s and early 90s, you'll know that the world's most fearsome fighting team were the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, or as we knew them, Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles, because outside of the US, the television gods had deemed the word ninja to be far too violent for a kid's cartoon. And so in Ireland, we got the Hero Turtles. In an episode of the cartoon, they actually visited Ireland once in an episode named The Irish Jig Is Up. Here we are, Dublin, capital of the Republic of Ireland. I'm just glad we're in a city. I was getting a little tired of the Irish countryside. Really? I shot some tape footage of you guys and you just disappeared in all that green. I think it is time we explore Dublin on foot. The Turtles, April and Splinter do some sightseeing. They learn about St. Patrick driving reptiles out of Ireland and ponder if they maybe should have worn better disguises themselves. All the while, Krang and Shredder are planning to take control of Ireland by transforming our timid sheep and rabbits into terrifying monsters to drive out all of the people in a kind of dastardly reverse St. Patrick evil plan. For this, of course, they will need the Rainbow Trans Charmer. Bring in the Rainbow Trans Charmer! Shredder brings the patented Rainbow Trans Charmer to Ireland and starts turning all of the animals of Dublin Zoo into vicious beasts. The turtles eventually save the day, but in the process, Michelangelo is hit by the Trans Charmer, which makes him much larger than usual. We'll head for the zoo and I'll turn all the creatures back to normal. You ready to go back to normal, Michelangelo? Oh, dude, can I stay this way? I really freaked out, old Shredhead. No way, Michelangelo. You're too big for the lair. Yeah, I guess you're right. Ta-da! I may be lean, but I'm still green. The Turtles didn't know it, but that wasn't actually their first visit to Ireland. Because a lot of Turtles episodes were actually animated here at a studio called Murakami Wolf, co-run by Jimmy Murakami, the subject of today's episode. Well, there's only one person, the Turtle, who could introduce today's show. Over to you, Leonardo. Thanks, compadre. It's time to meet your maker. Nice job. Yeah, Anytime, Liam. Say, uh, do you have any pizza, by the way? Podcasting makes me hungry. I'm sure I can sort that out. Cowabunga, Liam! Jimmy came over in the spring of 1970. When Jimmy Murakami came to Ireland in 1970, he couldn't have imagined that people would one day be referring to him as the founding father of the Irish animation industry. I'm Ethna Murakami. I was married to Jimmy Murakami for most of my adult life until he passed away five years ago. At the time, he was just coming for a job. He was going to be working on a Roger Corman film about the famous German fighter pilot, The Red Baron. He was the aerial director and the art director on the film. 
Jimmy once said of the experience, Corman taught me a lot, how to think on your feet, how to not waste money, how to schedule, how to be tough at the right time. And that was how he arrived in this country. One of his best friends said to him when he was leaving the night before he left, whatever you do, do not bring back an Irish girl. <laughs> Which brings us on to our next <laughs> next question. How did you meet? Separately, we were invited to a dinner in the famous Mirabu restaurant that I had never been in. It wasn't my scene. And for some reason, I arrived with my boyfriend at the time, late. So we were separated in opposite ends. And I happened to be sitting beside Jimmy. I mean, he was very exotic, as you can imagine. But I wasn't immediately attracted to him. But at one stage, he was, being Japanese, fish was predominantly part of his diet. So he was squeezing some lemon on his fish. And some of the lemon juice was squeezed into my eyes. So he very sheepishly put his hand up and apologised and thus began not an immediate love life, <laughs> love affair, but so it did, it, it blossomed out from there. Jimmy was born in San Jose, California, 1933. But his father was born in Japan in Nagoya and his mother was first generation. She was one of the oldest first generation Japanese living in Los Angeles. She would have come over in the first wave. Jimmy's father came over with his father to set up a Buddhist temple. They're in a branch of Buddhism called Shingon and he set up that temple up near Sacramento. They didn't know it, but when Jimmy was just eight years old, their entire world was about to be turned upside down. Mr. Vice President... Mr. Speaker, members of the Senate and the House of Representatives, yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. After Pearl Harbor, overnight, to be Japanese in America was to be the enemy. Jimmy's family, along with over 120,000 Japanese Americans, were incarcerated in American concentration camps for four years. Jimmy was a victim. He was interned in one of the heavy-duty concentration camps called Tula Lake. Jimmy really, I mean, he was very magnanimous and very friendly and very outgoing, but deep down he was a very angry man at what happened in his child. They were completely dispossessed. They lost everything. They had to start all over again. Surprisingly, nobody in Ireland knew, even his closest friends, of this childhood trauma where him, his brothers and sisters and mother and father were thrown into this camp after Pearl Harbor. Shay Mary Doyle is a documentary filmmaker who made a documentary called Jimmy Murakami, Non-Alien, about Jimmy in his later life when he'd made the journey back to the camp he'd been interned in as a child. It was in the camp that they were showing um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. He had a ticket and he lost it in the snow and he, he tramped around and he found it. But so the, the, that, that when he got out, he was a tough little fucker, as he called himself. And eventually he ended up in an art college. 
Jimmy studied fine art in what is now known as Cal Arts in Los Angeles. Jimmy once said of his time there that they wanted you to have all the background for not only life drawing, but also painting, designing, and animation. The animation side of things was taught by, amongst others, two of the famous Disney's Nine Old Men. Jimmy ended up working in various animation studios around the world, from New York to Japan, but eventually settled in Ireland. When Jimmy and myself ultimately moved back to Ireland, because uh, we lived in Los Angeles, he had clients in Europe and he had a big contract of 12 commercials for this company, animated commercials. And he wanted to base himself in pa- base us in Paris. But we, we discovered that um, we were expecting a baby. So I said, well, I'm not having a baby in French. I'm having a baby in Ireland. <laughs> and so we rented a house in Dorky from Maureen Cusack, the late Maureen Cusack. Maureen Cusack was an Irish actress and had actually appeared in the Roger Corman film about the Red Baron that Jimmy had worked on. So he commuted between here and Paris and our daughter was born that May in 1973. And he got another contract. We decided to stay on. We bought a house. We moved in when she was about um, three months old. It was a three-storey house in Sandy Cove that had been in seven bed sits. And we spent basically the next 10 or 15 years returning it to a house. Jimmy set up in the, the garden flat, set up a little studio where he worked. That was the beginning of it. Dublin in the 80s is a very different place to what it is today. I like what we are now, but there was a lovely, um, I don't know, there must have been a lot going on that we knew nothing about. But it was a lovely, small, people-sized city in the 80s and everything was a bit of a novelty and we, everybody embraced what was the fledgling animation industry, you know. It was really treated with a great deal of excitement. We lived in Sandy Cove on the main road, just there before Castle Park Road. And there was two, um, she's a writer, Claire Boylan, I think is her name, Claire and Lucienne uh, Purcell. They lived in a flat across the road and they used to see Jimmy taking Deirdre by the hand. She said, this big, tall Hawaiian fellow taking his little girl for a walk. <laughs> but we had another friend who used to call Jimmy Hawaii Five O and Deirdre Hawaii Two and a Half. I mean, he was a bit of a novelty, you know, and most people assumed he was Hawaiian and not Japanese. Jimmy made everything from animated features to commercials and from TV shows to short films. I'm Michael Algar. I produce animation, have been doing that for 30 years after a career before that in live action and then a period running the film board in the early 80s. Jimmy Murakami was a pal of mine, rang me up and said he'd set up this studio in Dublin with his partner Fred Wolf, and uh, Fred was producing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in Los Angeles and it was so popular that they couldn't get enough of them through the studio in time so he wanted to set up another facility with his former colleague Jimmy who was based in Dublin. They set up a studio here. Once you have flooded Ireland with savage beasts, 
the citizens will flee and the entire island will be mine. And so they were brought in a couple of Americans at the beginning just to get the whole thing up and running. But the Americans could only stay for about six months and had to go back to the States. So Jimmy rang me in London and said, would I come back and run uh, the studio, at least produce at the studio for the series and then whatever came after that. I came back and got into the whole world of animation and the whole process, which at that time was entirely hand-drawn. It was immediately before people started to use computers. So everything was hand-drawn from layouts through backgrounds, animation, clean-up, ink and paint, and even being shot on rostrum cameras one frame at a time. Well, here we are, McGillicuddy Castle, built in the 16th century. Are you sure this place meets modern building codes? It'll have to do, unless you want to be chased all over Dublin by people looking for leprechauns. Uh, when I got to know what the turtles was all about, initially I thought it was the oddest thing I'd ever heard. Two guys called Eastman and Laird originally produced a graphic novel called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles around about 83 or 84. And it was, it had a following. And it was kind of gritty and hard-edged. He liked the turtles, that series of turtles, because they're quite dark. You know, and that would have appealed to him. You know, he didn't like doing cute stuff that didn't appeal to his nature at all. Although he did some very, very cute stuff, but that wasn't where he was at in his head. They became a huge success. They were sold into syndication in the States. And then the syndicator, I think it was Group W, wanted more and more. So they were suddenly in full production doing these episodes from 87. And after, as I say, two years or so, they couldn't keep up with the demand. And that's when Fred knew about the IDA, contacted his old pal partner, Jimmy Murakami in Dublin and said, what about setting up Murakami Wolf in Dublin to produce the series? And there was a whole series, I think 13 episodes of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were produced out of there. You know, it was a nightmare at times (laughs) because we have a lot of bank holidays here, according to the American producers. And why aren't they working on Monday? It's a bank holiday, you know. Throughout his career, Jimmy made many award-winning animated short films. In 1982, one of his most famous projects aired for the first time. I mean, he wasn't the, the director on The Snowman, he was the supervising director, but Channel 4 wouldn't make it without Jimmy being involved. That winter brought the heaviest snow I'd ever seen. The snow fell steadily all through the night. And when I woke up, the room was filled with light and silence. And I knew then it was to be a magical day. I think there was a very nice man in the UK, Paul Madden. He was the producer and they were very keen that somebody with Jimmy's experience would be there because Diane Jackson hadn't directed a film before. So, but And he was very pleased at the outcome of that because it was a beautiful story for Christmas time and it was very different from what was going around at the time. It must have been wonderful because that's obviously become so a part of so many people's Christmas that it's 
like without fail it is on television every year absolutely yes yeah and we do watch it you know sometimes you know I mean if we've been in town and it's on in the afternoon on Channel 4 we'd all sit down and, and watch it and we can I mean they, they my our grandchildren they could they all play musical instruments and but they play different bits of of the of the music and that you know so it's a big important part of our lives an extraordinary book is about to come to life as an unforgettable motion picture. Jimmy would work on another adaptation of a Raymond Briggs book. This time it was a feature animated film, When the Wind Blows. The film that stands out is When the Wind Blows because Jimmy was a victim in the war, um, in the Second World War, in that he was interned in American concentration camp and he hated war as a result. And that film was such a strong piece of work from Raymond Briggs' book. Raymond didn't want it made into a film and he said the only person he would let have make, make it, it was Jimmy. It's the story of Jim and Hilda. Hello, dear. Hello, love. Did you have a nice morning, dear? Oh, all right, thanks. Rather uneventful. <laughs> the film is about a nuclear attack on Britain by the Soviet Union from the viewpoint of a retired couple. I remember when he got the galley copy of the book and he read it and he gave it to me and I read it and I said... I was so moved by it. And I said, Jimmy, if you never make another commercial or a film, this is the one you have to make. What's the matter, dear? Have you burned yourself? This is it, Ducks. This is really it. But now they're caught up in events which will change our world forever. Just you be careful, James. That definitely would be the film that he would feel that was his best work. I mean, it's a hard one to, say, to pick in when you look at the volume of work that he did. Jimmy's work made a major impact on the Irish animation industry. So much so that in 2013, the Dingle International Film Festival created the Murakami Award. Jimmy was the first recipient. He really had all the accolades. And then he was working on his final film, which was set in um, the atom bomb in Hiroshima. That was his, his kind of last going to be his last animation film. I was always very sad that he didn't get to make that last film because I think that would have been a wonderful close a chapter in his life, you know. And, and from what I hear, that somebody has now picked up the script and so he, he may yet appear one more time on our screens. was a very sensitive man and caring in the sense that he cared about his art and he cared about the people who were working in the industry. The only thing I can say is that I have yet to come across anybody, I and mean, probably they wouldn't say it to my face, that didn't like him, you know. And that's a really nice thing to be able to say about somebody. I mean, he had... 80 good years, but I think the 40 years that he, uh, we got married in 1971, and I think we moved back here in 1973, and I have to say, I think the 40 years that he lived in Ireland were the most peaceful and the happiest. (laughs) 
Meet Your Maker is produced and hosted by me, Liam Garrity. Special thanks to the original voice of Leonardo from the Turtles voiceover legend, Cam Clark. Today's show is part of our series on the history of the animation industry in Ireland. As always, our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Additional music was by Blue Dot Sessions. You can support the show and get goodies at patreon.com forward slash meet your maker. That's it. See you soon. Meet Your Maker is a member of The Warren, the home of great Irish podcasts. For more, including my podcast, The Critter Shed, see thewarren.ie.